Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Wednesday, April 5th, and I'm Dr. Julia Bruner, Senior Vice President for Behavioral Health and Correctional Medicine at Metro Health. And I'm pleased to welcome everyone here for this very special City Club event. I'm honored to introduce the United States Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murtry, and for a live recording of his podcast, House Calls. He will be in a conversation with Northeast Ohio's own best-selling author and child psychologist, Dr. Lisa Demore. Dr. Vivek Murthy is the nation's 21st Surgeon General and a post he previously held under President Obama. As the nation's doctor, he holds the rank of Vice Admiral of the U.S. Public Health Services Commission's Corps commanding a uniformed service of over 6,000 public health officers. His podcast, House Calls, was in, launched in 2022 with the premise that it is very much in step with what we do here at the City Club, and that is we believe that conversations can heal. In this episode, Dr. Murthy takes his guests off script and explores how they navigate the messiness and the uncertainties of life to find meaning and joy. By sharing openly what's on our minds and in our hearts, we can find strength and healing through connection. Joining the Surgeon General and Dr. Demore on this journey today is our audience, made up of more than 200 parents and partners of teenagers across the greater Cleveland area. The City Club would like to thank you for, nearly two, for our nearly two dozen community partners for their support in bringing our parents to this to today's special event. And it's important that parents are here and their partners in the care of their children because we know that they understand how significant the issue of mental health on teens has become and that it's not just because of the pandemic that we've all endured. Parents, mental health professionals, and policymakers are concerned about how teens are managing the impact of social media and the stress built into the high school experience. In addition to larger issues shaping our uncertain future, the rise of gun violence, the lingering effects of the pandemic, climate change, and the threats to democracy and civil rights. According to the National Alliance of Mental Illness, NAMI, one in six adolescents between the ages of 12 and 17 experienced a major depressive episode and three million had serious thoughts of suicide. Those numbers are even higher for young people between the ages of 18 and 25. For these reasons and more, Surgeon General Murthy has made mental health in, for our youth a priority in his office. And in December of 2021, he issued a public advisory urging a response. Joining the Surgeon General on stage is Dr. Lisa Demore. Many of you know her. She's a clinical child psychologist and the author of three best-selling books covering teenage mental health and a senior advisor to the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University. Dr. Demore frequently contributes to the New York Times and the Washington Post and is the executive director of Laurel School Center for Research on Girls. We are excited to have Laurel here with us today. If you have questions for our guests, 
you can text text the questions to 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and the City Club staff will try to answer and work. Or not, they won't answer it. Sorry about that. <laughs> They'll try to work it into the Q&A portion of the program. Um, members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Murthy, and Dr. Lisa Damore. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. And I'm so glad to be doing this conversation with uh, a friend and somebody I admire deeply, Dr. Lisa Dumore. I do want to also thank you for joining us for something we're doing for the very first time, which is a live recording of our podcast, House Calls. And so this should be fun. This is something we do all the time with a variety of guests, the podcast itself. But to record it in front of an audience uh, is a special treat for us today. And we're really looking forward to your questions afterward. So without further ado, let me jump in. And today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is on many people's minds, and that is mental health, particularly the mental health of teenagers. And I'm really fortunate to be having this conversation with Dr. Lisa Demore. She's a writer. She's a clinician. She's a proud Cleveland resident. Uh, but she's also somebody who's looked to by so many people in the country for advice on teen and adolescent health. And her work has helped. Uh, parents around the country, both her books, but also the contributions that she makes to the New York Times and to CBS News. But most importantly, and I think her most important qualification for doing this work is that she is a mom herself uh, of two wonderful children. So Lisa, thank you so much for doing this and welcome to House Calls. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be with you. I'm grateful um, to this audience for being here with us and I am so looking forward to this conversation. Well, me too. And let's start with where we are as a country when it comes to teen mental health. You talk to people all over the country, uh, to kids, to their parents. What is the state of teen mental health, and how much of an effect did the pandemic have on how our kids are doing? So we're trying to wrap our hands around where we are now. What we know is that prior to the pandemic, and I know you know this, but this is important to lay out, we had started to see a rise in concerns about adolescent mental health. Right around 2010, the numbers started to tick up in terms of depression and anxiety. They were ticking up slowly, and then along comes the pandemic. And the way I think about it is we were on a road that was not going well, and then we were in a ditch for a year and a half to two years. And we're now trying to figure out where we are. What I can tell you is that a lot of teenagers are doing just fine, that they are back to their old routines, they are living their lives, they are thriving. For them, the pandemic is very much in the rearview mirror. But there are a lot of teens who suffered tremendously through the pandemic and continue to suffer in the aftermath of the pandemic. I think another thing that's informing this moment is that it's a very frightening time to be the parent of a teenager. That Teenagers have been through so much. We are doing a good job of documenting how hard it was for them to go through the pandemic. And so a lot of the adults I'm talking with now find themselves in a moment where they're looking at a teenager who may or may not be having a regular bad day, but they're not altogether sure. Is this a regular bad day or is this a kid having an adolescent mental health crisis? So I think part of what we can do is to help people tease those two things apart because typical adolescent development is um, a rich and spicy business <laughs> and trying to help set that apart from the true adolescent mental health crisis that we're seeing is not altogether easy. Hmm. 
Well, there's so much to dig into there and a lot of rich and spicy topics, as you mentioned. <laughs> but I want to actually step back and talk about the term mental health because mm -hmm. this means different things to different people. And you've, you've spoken about this, about how we perhaps are thinking about mental health uh, in the wrong way. So how do you think about what mental health is? So to me and to psychologists, mental health isn't about feeling good or calm or relaxed or happy. We like those things, but those don't actually figure into how we assess mental health. For us, the way I think about it is that it comes down to two things. The first is having feelings that fit their context, even if they are negative and unpleasant and unwanted. And the second, and this is really where the rubber hits the road, managing the feelings well. So if we think of a young person, maybe they have a best, best friend, and then they get the news that their best, best friend is leaving town, moving away. What we would fully expect to see is a lot of sadness. We expect to see that teenager be deeply upset. On its own, that does not raise our concern that there's a mental health issue at play. What we're going to watch is what happens next. So does that teenager cry? We know that crying brings relief. It's a very calms the central nervous system. If it's a teenager, they probably put on their sad playlist and listen to their sad playlist for a while to help catalyze the expression of those emotions. They might get tired of that and then go for a run to get some relief, and then they might make plans to see their friends. Hmm. So that is exactly what we're looking for. That is the picture of health. Our concerns arise if they take a different path. If they decide, I'm so sad and this feels awful, the best solution will be to smoke a lot of marijuana until this feeling dies down. Hmm. Or if I'm miserable, everybody's going to be miserable and we're going to be miserable for a week. Or I'm going to turn this against myself and I'm not going to take good care of myself. That's where our concerns will center. But on its own, distress does not alarm psychologists so often. And I think this is such a different view, but it's something that is so central to our understanding. So often, distress is evidence of mental health. If a teenager has a huge test tomorrow and they have not started studying, we expect to see anxiety. We would like to see some anxiety, <laughs> right? So. Psychologists are vastly more agnostic on the negative or positive nature of emotion than one might think we are. Hmm. Well, well, that is very helpful. And uh, I think this notion that it's OK not to be happy all the time, that there's appropriate responses, uh, sad responses to circumstances that maybe arises, is very helpful. And, and it gets to something that uh, you know, I, I've been thinking about as a parent myself, uh, as I watch my two kids who are five and six, six evolve in terms of their emotions. Which is, as parents, how do we know when the emotions are appropriate, not just in terms of degree and context, but also in terms of the extent of how long they last? Mm -hmm. like, like, how do we know when it's the, important to intervene? So to use a medical example mm -hmm. um, in your honor, one of the ways that we think about these things as psychologists is that healthy people get sick. They get colds, right? They feel lousy. And part of how we know they're healthy is they get better. There are also people who get sick and they don't get better. They get more and more and more ill. They're unable to fight off whatever has found them. And that's grounds for concern. So there's no sort of perfect moment when we know you've crossed the line from one to the other. But what I would say is if you use sort of the common cold model, we expect our kids to have the common cold of all sorts of distress. Mm -hmm. And we expect them to find their way through it. They'll feel crummy for a while, and then they'll feel better, and we can help them feel better. We don't expect 
kids to feel low or anxious and stay in that place for a long time. And what we really don't expect to see or don't want to see is if it starts to interfere with their life. <clears throat> so they're not going to school or they're not seeing their friends. They're not doing the things they need to do. Mm. So that's really helpful because I think this question of when to worry mm -hmm. as a parent is, is a common one. Uh, and that is very helpful. I, I think one of the things that's hard about parenting, and I want to preface this by saying I think parenting is one of the hardest jobs in the world, one of the most undervalued jobs in the world, but also a job I think has gotten harder uh, in the last few years in particular. And not just because of the pandemic, but I just think so much is evolving in our world, particularly around technology. It's hard as a parent to keep up with all of this and to know what your kids are engaged with, what's okay, what's not okay, what are the risks. Uh, this is a tough time to be a parent. And I was wondering if you could help us think about adolescence now compared mm -hmm. to prior periods of adolescence. Like every generation has gone through adolescence. It's, it's hard. Middle school is rougher, almost everyone, right? <laughs> uh, myself included. <coughs> uh, but it, it feels like there's something different yeah. about what kids are going through now compared to prior generations. So how should we think about the adolescent experience now and what's different? So I think there's some boilerplate stuff that just remains true <clears throat> about what it means to be a teenager. And um, when I talk to parents of teenagers, and as the parent of teenagers myself, there's a lot of stuff that feels familiar, mm. you know, that it's not all new. But one of the ways I think about what feels really different in the teenagers I care for is that there's a huge amount more input into their day and into their lives. They are fielding so much more information than we ever did. And of course, a lot of that is coming to them through their phones. Um, they are deeply aware of all that's happening in their social worlds, all that's happening in the wider world. And they're getting that information all day long. I also think, um, for a subset of teenagers, we're looking for a lot more output. When I think about um, what we're asking of very ambitious teenagers in terms of high school achievement, plans for the future, the demands on them are far higher than they were when you and I were teenagers. And so I think that that sort of accelerates everything. And we also know they're not sleeping very much. Mm. When we look at the data over time, we see worsening sleep going up at like a nearly 45 degree angle in um, the graphs that we have, which happens to map almost perfectly onto worsening mental health. So that is something that has changed mm. over time. Why are our kids sleeping less? It's a great question. Mm. Um, for me, one of the languages we use in psychology is the idea of a final common pathway mm. where sort of everything converges. And I think sleep might be one where there's a lot of things that can undermine sleep. So sometimes it's because they have their phones in their bedrooms overnight. And our phones are irresistible, and they're designed to be. And that undermines sleep. And we even have data showing that sleeping in a room with a phone in it will give you worse sleep. You actually don't sleep as soundly. And the reason we think that's true is that we are all so Pavlovianly attached to our phones that when we are not engaging a nearby phone, a degree of our energy is resisting the impulse to engage it. And that's true even while we are sleeping. So that's an issue. There are also kids who have very, very heavy demands on their time, right? When we look at what um, ambitious high schoolers are doing, it looks very different than it has in years past. There are also kids who have two jobs that they are using to try to support their family. And they are working long hours to try to keep the family afloat financially. So when I think about how you know the various inroads we can make to the adolescent mental health crisis, thinking about sleep, 
and thinking about what is interfering with any particular teenager's sleep feels to me like one of the most solid and reliable ways to try to make things better. Mm. Well, that's, that's very helpful. And I can see as you're talking about sleep that this is a this can be a, a reinforcing circle, and uh, I, I think of it as a vicious cycle where you sleep less, it impacts your mental health, potentially increases your anxieties, which leads you to sleep less, and then around and around we go. Um, breaking that cycle, I think, is, is challenging, and, and thinking about the role of parents in this is, is something I want to talk to you about, because right now, kids potentially have a lot of resources available to them. Not all kids, but some kids. They may go online for advice, they may uh, look to their friends for advice. As a parent in 2023, how should we think about what our role is in shaping the mental health and experience of our kids? As a parent, I can actually sum up our job in two words. Hmm. Easy to say, hard to do. Our job is to try to be a steady presence for our kids. So that means both in the day-to-day, -to, -day, to try to be present and try to be available and provide a world for our kids that is full of warmth and also structure. We know that's sort of the magic combination. And then when our kids are upset, and especially when our teenagers are upset, to especially then try to be a steady presence. Right. And that's the hardest time. Because teenagers do get upset with or without a mental health concern. Their emotions are enormously powerful by their nature. It's just a neurological phenomenon that they have very, very potent emotions. And teenagers are watching the adults around them for information about how bad the situation really is. Mm. <laughs> so if a teenager's had a terrible day and a fight with their best friend and they come home and they express this to their parent, they are watching the parent. And if the parent gets just as upset as the teenager about it, the teenagers will think, oh, I thought this was a 15-year-old size problem. This is apparently a 52-year-old size problem. Like this is quite a bit more concerning. So our job is to try to be a steady presence. We can't do it all the time. But that is usually what teenagers need, mm -hmm. is for the adults to try to be um, sturdy and, and around. Mm -hmm. Now, you know and I know, one of the worst things about the pandemic for teenagers was not only that they were suffering so, but that all of the adults who cared for mm -hmm. them, whether it's their family or their schools or their religious communities, those adults were suffering too. And so part of how we help adolescent mental health is to take really good care of the adults in their environment. And I think that is such a, a powerful point you just made. The health of kids is impacted by the health of the adults around them. And in my travels around, around the country uh, you know, over the last two years, uh, and when I do roundtables with, with young people, I am so struck by how they said during the pandemic in particular, they really felt like they had to grow up and not be kids anymore because the people they would normally talk to or expect would react to their stresses, namely their parents, were occupied with their own stresses and worries and they didn't want to add to their burdens. And so I was heartbroken when I heard that the first time and it, and it continues to pain me each time I hear it, but it does feel like if we really want to help kids, we also have to think about help, how to help parents yeah. and how to support parents because they are They've taken on more, I think, than most people can humanly do and are trying to navigate forces, that, including around technology, which we'll get to, that we are still only at the edges of understanding fully. And that's, that's a tall order. Um, but speaking of parenting and tall orders, one of the 
I, I was with a, a friend recently uh, at their house, and I, I loved actually talking to the kids of my friends because I feel like I learn a lot uh, from them. Uh, they're my own sort of focus groups, if you will. <laughs> and so I was at the, the home of these two, two very dear friends and talking to their two children uh, the other day. And one of them, uh, toward the end, when we were just about to leave, mentioned uh, that his middle school classmate had talked about wanting to harm herself mm -hmm. and had mentioned that uh, she doesn't feel like she has the will to live anymore. Mm. And there was, I, I remember pausing that moment and just thinking, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. to hear that as a middle schooler from one of your classmates is profoundly disturbing and is concerning. But as a parent, when you hear that, mm -hmm. like, you know, how to talk to your kid about that, and many parents also wonder, is my child feeling that way? Mm -hmm. If I bring it up with my child, is I going to introduce an idea like mm -hmm. into their head, which is something we used to think about even mm -hmm. with adults uh, clinically and until we realize, no, it doesn't put the idea in their head. But a lot of parents are having this experience of seeing either um, actual self-harm take place or seeing children who are considering self-harm. And they're not sure how to talk to their kids about this. So what advice would you have for how to broach the topic of mm -hmm. self-harm? I'm so glad you're bringing this up because my experience is this worry sits underneath all of it. Mm. You know, there's so much concern about teenagers in general, but also with the many headlines about adolescent suicide, I think this is what's keeping parents up at night. And of course it is. So I will confirm that what you know to be true about adults is also true about teenagers. Raising the topic does not give them the idea. And this is often what keeps people from asking. And what we also know from the research is that if a teenager is thinking about suicide, they're glad you asked. Hmm. So the way to do this, if a parent has a concern, my advice would be to say to a teenager, because of, and then you have to give them a reason. You can't just sort of ask this out of the blue. Because you um, have been in your room for a day and a half, or because you were so upset about that thing, or because you haven't seemed like yourself, like hang some, you know, some hook to hang it on. I need to ask you a question. Have you had any thoughts of harming yourself or ending your life? Hmm. Just ask. And we do find that teenagers appreciate the question and it doesn't make things worse and it can make things much better. The other thing we want to prepare parents for is that it has always been the case that teenagers sometimes say things that parents don't know what to do with. And it can be dramatic and scary things like, I feel like I could kill myself or I don't want to be here anymore. Hmm. If a teenager does that, I find it's really helpful to respond by saying, okay, wait, I heard you. Is that something you're really thinking about or is that how upset you are right now? And teenagers will usually say, oh, no, 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 that's not what I'm thinking about. And then you go down the road of dealing with how upset they are mm -hmm. right then. But I think all parents should have these two, two tools in their toolbox. Mm -hmm. One, how to raise the question if something has made them concerned, and two, how to respond if the teenager says something concerning. Right. That's very helpful and reassuring. Um, one more question about this, since this is now becoming my personal therapy session. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> parental guidance uh, tutelage. But our kids sometimes, sometimes we, we, sometimes we want to talk to them about something difficult that's happening in their life. And there's a point where that's important and helpful. We're also trying to strike this balance you know, between that and, and not prolonging uh, their focus on an issue that may have happened in the past that upset them. How do we find that right balance mm -hmm. so that we are being 
you know, an avid and, and, and open and available listener for our children, but that we're not contributing to uh, continue or prolonging their focus on an issue that we want them ultimately to get beyond? Well, I think the general framing is that time works differently for teens than it does for adults. Mm. I've always thought that um, teenage years are like dog years. Like one year of life for us is like seven years for mm -hmm. them. Like so much growth and change happens. And the way parents experience this in the day to day is that their kid is in the worst possible mood at 8 a.m. And then at 8, 8 10, their mm -hmm. kid's in a great mood. Yeah. And you know, like things have changed completely. So I think that especially with adolescents, you want to track where they are. Mm -hmm and really work mo moment to moment with them um, in terms of their mood. There are times, however, where we need to bring something up, where there's just a topic that it feels wrong not to mention. And if it's not something the teenager's bringing up and they don't seem to be in that place, I think it's really smart to give them sort of some fair warning, to say, you know, I was thinking about this article I read or I was thinking about that thing you said the other day and I do want to touch base with you about it. Get a read on how much they're in the mood to talk. And if they're not chomping at the bit for that mm. conversation, keep it short. Mm -hmm. Say your piece, let them hear you out, and be ready to move on. But I think so often adults have a very important thing to say and a, a lot they want to say, and they roll up on a teenager who is thinking about 400 other things mm -hmm and is surprised by the conversation, and the conversation doesn't go well, and the adult feels disappointed. And I think, well, their lives are busy. They got a lot going on. Mm. If we're going to introduce something heavy, we need to give them a fair warning. That's really good advice. And you're making me realize I've done this wrong. <laughs> we all get it wrong. <laughs> I learn mostly from my parenting mistakes. Because I can remember, I've got a five and six-year-old, but with my six-year-old in particular, He'll be upset about something. Ten minutes later, just like you said, he'll be fine. And then I'll revisit it just to make sure he's okay. And then he'll get annoyed. He'll be like, what are you talking about? I, I, I don't remember what just yeah. happened. But I'm very disturbed by something you said because my six-year-old's moods change every ten minutes sometimes. And I thought that was going to change after a year or two. But it sounds like from what you're saying, I'm in for another decade or more of this. Um, so. Actually, actually, things should settle down okay. a little while. Um, the way that we measure development as psychologists is we think sort of zero to five, which is, as all parents know, bananas, hmm. right? And then six to 10, we call latency, hmm. which means that all of those intense emotions sort of start to quiet. So he should, mm -hmm. he should quiet down a little bit. He'll still have moods, but they may not be so vivid. And then, here's something that everyone should know. Adolescence begins at 11, way earlier than anybody <laughs> thinks it begins. Um, this is largely driven by puberty. And what we know is that the effects of puberty are underway neurologically, often before they're outwardly visible. And so everyone should know that if they're fifth or sixth grader, suddenly wants more privacy, wants to close their bedroom door, doesn't want you to call them cutie patootie anymore. Uh -huh. <laughs> Nothing is wrong. Adolescence has not struck early. <laughs> this is typical development. And psychologists have always marked the onset of adolescence at 11. The other thing, if you're thinking about what you are in for and what to expect, emotionality in teens actually peaks around ages 13 or 14. Mm. A little bit more 13 for girls, a little bit more 14 for boys. And it really is just a function of what's happening neurologically, the relative strength of their emotions versus their ability to control their emotions. I 
I wish I could have billboards that mm. said adolescence begins at 11, emotionality peaks at 13, because I think so often people feel like, whoa, why is my little kid acting like a teenager? And then at 13 they think, holy moly, if this is how we are starting adolescence, like what is in store? And what I can promise you is that mostly your 15, 16, 17-year-olds are a lot more easygoing. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. Okay, I'm going to call my wife after this. Okay. <laughs> Brace for 13. Yes. <laughs> 11 and then 13. That's right, that's right. Well, you know, Lisa, I, I know you're no stranger to, the, to what people often say about this generation of kids who are growing up, which is that among the many other things, they say this generation of kids who are growing up are, are more fragile and less resilient. I wanted to get your take on that. Number one, is that true? And if it is true, what do we think might be contributing to either that or to the perception that that's the case? I don't want to say it's true. Mm -hmm. I have so much belief and faith in teenagers. And i got to tell you, the beauty of being a clinician is to have an inside look at people's lives and the strength in adolescence. And I watch teenagers day after day become philosophical and broad-minded through conditions that would level any adult. Hmm. So I, I just, I, I don't, I, to, they do not strike me as fragile. Now, what we are observing, and we have observed this in the data collected by the American Psychological Association for a while, they are stressed, hmm. and they are rightly stressed. Um, and when we ask adolescents about stress prior to the pandemic, they tell us concerns about climate change, concerns about gun violence, concerns about political polarization. They are acutely aware of the realities that surround them. They are acutely aware of what they are soon to inherit. Mm -hmm. And they're having the right reaction. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I would just tease it apart. I think they're every bit as sturdy, if not vastly more sturdy than we ever were. And yet they are up against things that we as adults really need to own and acknowledge and do everything we can to bring back under control. I think that's really well said. And, and I think the temptation for older generations to compare themselves, current generations, and say, I went through that too. You know, adolescence was hard for me too. I think it belies the fact that the, the unique set of stressors on this generation are, are really unprecedented, right? I didn't have to deal with social media growing up as a child. I didn't have to deal with the information environment around me being 24 seven and coming at me from all different corners and with that information often being quite negative, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's just a lot that we were able, I think, to turn off and mm -hmm. be protected from, uh, you know, in prior generations when we were growing up. Uh, and, you know, I, I wanna talk a little bit about relationships here and about friendships, about romantic relationships as they pertain to, to adolescence. And I've been concerned about this because I you know, have worried a lot about how lonely children feel and how much loneliness is impacting the country more broadly. Uh, but we know that around one in two people in America are struggling with loneliness, but that the numbers are actually even higher among kids. And I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, about that. Like, are you seeing uh, this challenge of loneliness as well in the children that you work with? And what do you think might be driving it? I think I'm seeing it so much more post-pandemic. Mm. The phrase I will hear from teenagers several times a week is the pandemic messed up my friendships. Mm. Like that's how they say it. And, and I think that's just such a, um, an elegant and to the core description of it. Um, and how could it not? 
how could it not? You know, they were away from one another. They were in better and worse ways using social media to try to stay connected, but they were losing all of that 3D in-person data that can only be gotten when you're at school with your friends. Um, and they were deeply sad. Mm -hmm. And so we are still trying to help sort out how kids socialize, how to help kids build good social skills, how to help kids manage when they are having a hard time with somebody. Mm. We're also watching kids struggle with managing conflict well. And so um, when I think about what we as adults can do, I think it's a huge amount of being attentive to whether or not a child has at least one friend. Mm. One or two good friends goes very, very far for kids. They don't need big groups. Um, if kids don't have a close friend, I always fall back on the rule that you don't make friends, you find friends. Hmm. And so um, I always give advice to get that kid in new traffic patterns, right? If they haven't mm -hmm. found their people at school, get them into something after school, get them something on the weekend so they can find the kid where the chemistry really works. Um, but we need to attend to it, we need to support it, and, um, and we need to take seriously that everybody needs friends. Absolutely. And those friendships are critical, and I, I'm curious, in today's age where people have relationships online and offline, <laughs> How should parents think about online friendships? And, and where does the online option help our social connection versus hurt our ability to form deep relationships? So what we know from the data is that it's not that there's your IRL friendships mm -hmm. and then your online friendships, mm -hmm. that they're actually um, the same world. Mm -hmm. And whatever's happening in real life is amplified online. So kids who enjoy good, sturdy friendships, get along well with their dear friends or a small group, that just carries over to their online activity and they use their time online to deepen and strengthen and expand those connections. Kids who are struggling socially, who are isolated or engaged in a lot of conflict, what we see is that is also reflected in their online world, that they continue to have more trouble to be involved in more cyberbullying on either side, sometimes both. And so um, we want to think in many ways of social media as an accelerator mm -hmm. of what's already in place. And it's, it's a tough one because this is one of those situations where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer very fast mm. with the online environment. That's, that's very helpful. And, and it, it tracks with this notion of, uh, which we'll get to in a moment, about social media being a double-edged sword mm -hmm. uh, for, for our children. But before we go there, y you mentioned earlier on some gender differences. and. Uh, when we think about mental health. And I, I want to think about friendships in particular. What have you seen or, and learned about how kids, based on their gender, may approach or experience or form friendships mm -hmm. differently? Hmm. So if we just go with traditional gender categories, what we see is that girls tend to center their friendships on talking, hmm. right? Being able to be in communication about the things they care about Boys often center their friendships on shared activities, mm -hmm. joint you know, ventures, whether it's a beloved video game or playing mm -hmm. sports together or after school Lego league. Um, what we do also know, and this is important to say, boys' friendships are every bit as deep as girls' friendships. People, mm -hmm. I think, sometimes can be dismissive that boys are tough or indifferent or you know, do well as a lone wolf. That's not what we see in mm -hmm. the research. Boys are as desperate for connection as girls and um, do form profound relationships mm -hmm. with their peers. Yeah, and that is, uh, that last point you mentioned about 
boys needing relationships just as much as girls, I think is, is so important because I, I, when I think about my own son, I worry about the, about the version of manhood that we have uh, often taught, you know, so, which is a, a guy should be independent, they should be on their own, they should be self-sufficient, they shouldn't need anyone else. Showing emotion is not necessarily manly. Like all of these things which can interfere mm -hmm. with this notion that you actually need other people and you need friendships and relationships. Um, do you see that shifting uh, in, in the broader culture? And if not, what do we need to do to help boys and, and uh, you know, in early stages of life and in adolescence feel okay with expressing their emotions, with reaching out and initiating friendship and with building the relationships that we all need? I don't see it shifting as fast as I wish it were. Hmm. And you are entirely right that we have a script for what is masculine. It is often lone wolf, tough and vulnerable. And especially for boys, say, around middle school who are really working to consolidate this um, identity around masculinity. What many of them come to the conclusion is that um, talking about feelings is a girl thing. Hmm. And then if they happen to be in two parent heterosexual households where the only person who's bringing up feelings is their mom, hmm. which happens a lot, that woman who's doing such good work can actually unwittingly entrench exactly what she is trying to upend. Mm. And so what has become very clear to me as I do my work is that if we really want boys to talk about feelings, and we really do want boys to talk about feelings, and we want them to talk about feelings that go beyond anger and pleasure at someone else's expense, which are the two categories of emotion they are allowed in our culture, um, the men in their lives have to be on the front lines of this. The men need to be talking about their own feelings. The men need to be asking boys about their feelings. And this will continue to be a problem so long as we treat the discussion of emotion as women's work. Mm. Really well put. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the two emotions that are permissible. Yes. Can you repeat that and underscore yes. that once more? So, That's important. Well, this was, this was research I really dove into in my, mm. my recent book, and it was so fascinating. So here's what I was expecting to find, and here's what I did find. Mm. What I was expecting to find was that girls and women were allowed to feel sad, anxious, frustrated, angry. They were allowed to sort of enjoy this wide range of emotions, and that is largely true. There's an asterisk on angry, and we can come back to it. Mm. Um, <laughs> And I expected to find that boys were allowed to only feel invulnerable, so either anger or pleasure at someone else's expense. Hmm. So that was largely what I found. The unexpected finding is I, around, so there's two things around anger. Um, one thing I did not expect to see, and I thought was, to be honest, quite amusing, hmm. is that um, girls actually do express anger when they are young, so elementary school age and younger, boys express more anger than girls. Hmm. That flips in adolescence. Girls express more anger than boys in adolescence. There is one form of anger, however, where girls outpace boys all the way through development, and it's disdain, which huh. I thought was really funny. I thought that was really funny. Now, the asterisk, the asterisk on the expression of emotion, and especially anger in girls, it is not safe to do if you are black. So, There are different rules for the expression of negative emotions in black teenagers 
Um, they are disproportionately treated with heavy disciplinary response by cultural institutions. So as you start to tease apart the data, the story is not the same for everyone. That's such a good point. Uh, such a good point, and it's. I think to build on your point, it's not. It's also not only not acceptable for certain groups, and like you're saying, for Black women to express that anger, but it can be unsafe, Fair. as well, Fair. and can subject people to consequences, physical consequences, legal consequences that others may not experience, which I think contributes even further to our disparities, but also comes back to the importance, I think, of what you have uh, articulated so beautifully, which is the importance of understanding that at the end of the day, we are all emotional creatures as well. That's part of who we are, regardless of our gender, regardless of, of our race, and understanding how those emotions play into how we interact with each other and how we interface with the world is just really important because when I think about my, my, my kids also, and something I wanna ask you about, I want my kids not only to be able to manage their own emotions, but I also want them to be able to interpret and understand the emotions of others, right? So that if somebody else is mad at them, to recognize it may not be about them. It might be about something else entirely. And if they assume it's about them, they might lash out, they might just feel really bad about themselves, like they did something wrong. Whereas all the while, they may have very little role to play at all, like mm -hmm. in the outburst that they just witnessed or experienced. Um, but it sounds like, you know, in an ideal world, you know, children would get the emotional education that we all need uh, at home. The reality is that many children don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not faulting parents here. A lot of times parents don't necessarily have that themselves or they may try but not be able to successfully, uh, you know, instill that in their child. What role do schools have here? What role does broader society have in helping kids build the social and emotional learning and skills that they need to be able to manage both their emotions but also interpret the emotions of others? So schools can do a huge amount and are working so hard to do mm -hmm. a huge amount in terms of building out SEL curriculum, helping kids become fluent in a language of emotions. And what can seem small is actually tremendous, mm -hmm. which is actually helping kids learn to label emotions, mm -hmm. to come up with a word to describe the feeling that they're having. And what we know from the research is that that act alone, if I say to you, oh, Vivek, I'm feeling very anxious, mm -hmm. as soon as I say it, I actually feel less anxious. Mm -hmm. Just the expression, regardless of the response I get, just the putting feelings into words brings them down to size. Mm -hmm. That's just something we know to be true. So helping kids learn to label their feelings and helping kids learn to read other people. Um, and if families do have the wherewithal, so much of that can happen at home. And, and I want to go back on what I said about being a steady presence. Being a steady presence doesn't mean adopting a Zen attitude and being un, unruffled by your kid. Hmm. And I think there can be really powerful moments for a parent to say, OK, I need to let you know I'm getting pretty mad, or I hmm. feel mad. And it may either be I'm mad because of something you did, or I'm mad about something else that happened. Hmm. right? So the parent alone can give that kind of context. And then, again, back to our definition of mental health, what we want to see is what does the parent do next? Yeah. So I'm going to go take a walk around the block, or I'm going to go watch my favorite TV show, or I'm going to go do something to handle this well. And that we can all the time, as adults around kids, be labeling emotions and then modeling healthy coping. Yes. And if we just do those two things as much as possible, we'll make things better. 
Lisa, I, I want to use the last portion of our time to talk about technology. We've touched mm -hmm. on this a little bit already in terms of online versus offline mm -hmm. friendships. I find that one of the most vexing questions for parents is how to manage phones and social media for their kids. Mm -hmm. There's no guidebook here. This technology is evolving quickly. What advice do you have for parents on how they should think about these two things in particular, phones and social media, as their kids are growing up? So there's unsubtle and subtle versions of this. Mm -hmm. So the unsubtle, truly, is I don't think kids should have tech in their bedrooms if you mm -hmm. can help it. Um, and certainly not at night. Mm -hmm. Not at night. We know that there's no reason for them to have tech at night. That is a good reason. Um, then there's the subtle. And one of the ways I think about it is social media can be very hard on kids. Social isolation is also hard on kids. And so for me, I think about it as an inflection point, which is basically delay, 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 delay. Right? If your kid is still plugged in socially, getting along with other kids socially, or if texting alone mm -hmm. is keeping them plugged in. And kids can go a long time on texting. Right? They really can get very deep into development without needing to be online social, in social media apps to stay connected. I would push it as long as possible. And to me, when you say push it, you mean delay, delay the use of social media as long as possible? Delay the use of social media as long as possible. And, and you know, we have re emerging research showing something I'm not surprised by, you know, that 13-year-olds on social media is a very different scene than 17-year-olds on social media. And the way this shows up in my clinical work is sometimes I'll go talk to a group of high school juniors about their social media use, and they'll be like, we're not the ones you need to talk to, it's the seventh graders. <laughs> and, and I think <laughs> high school juniors tend to be pretty accurate around these things. And so when we talk about social media and we talk about teenagers, we have to be careful not to collapse things, right? right? That there really is a very um, distinct difference, and we're starting to see that in the research. The other thing I would want parents to be really mindful of is the force of the algorithms. So algorithms are very large data sets that are constantly collecting information on how we use our technology, especially our social media technology and YouTube, what we look at, what we like, what we comment on, what we even rest on for a little bit. Those then decide what you see next. And the game here is to show you something next that you cannot resist. These algorithms are working with massive data sets. They are incredibly good at knowing what we're not gonna be able to pull away from. And they start to actually shape very specific online environments. The way teenagers talk about these environments is as sides, like what side of TikTok are you on? Hmm. So some kids are on the cute animal side of TikTok. Some kids are on the goofy dance side of TikTok. OK. Other kids are on the ultra fitness, ultra diet side of TikTok. Other kids are on the white supremacy side of TikTok. And the way we want to think about this is that teenagers especially are vulnerable to norms. Little kids are not so vulnerable. Adults are not quite as vulnerable. But teenagers are very norm vulnerable. And once they are into an algorithm, it is showing them the same thing over and over and over again that can become a norm. And so in the pandemic, for example, when a lot of kids had time on their hands and were trying to improve themselves somehow and started searching for diet, exercise, fitness, Soon, their feeds were flooded with image after image after image of someone who's very thin or very fit. Mm -hmm. And if you look at 400 of those a day, that creates a norm that then transfers into real-world behavior. And we saw this enormous upshot, uptick in um, eating disorder behavior in the pandemic. So what I would say to parents is, you want to know what side of TikTok your kid is on. Mm -hmm. And how's a parent supposed to know that? 
is a great question. That is a really great question. That is a really, that is the key question, isn't it? So for TikTok, you can ask your kid what's on their For You page, right? That that's how it introduces. I also think once you have an older teenager, you can ask. I also think if you feel like you can't get an honest answer from your kid about what side of TikTok they're on, they probably should not be on TikTok. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good advice. And I would also note that one thing I've heard from a lot of kids and parents about the notion of delaying the age at which they start using social media is they say it's a lot easier if other kids are delaying as well. <laughs> and being the only one who's doing it makes it really tough, both for the parent and the kid. So the extent to which parents are able, in some cases, partner or work together uh, to delay the age of use for their kids it would make it helps to make their kids feel like they're not alone. But I also think that this is a moment where parents in particular, I think their voices are so important in this broader cultural conversation we're having and policy conversation on social media and technology and how to protect our children. Uh, and I think when, when they do speak up, whether it's you know, in the, the town square or whether it's the policymakers or whether it's in their schools, um, I think it helps because I think a lot of parents are dealing with this challenge and struggle around technology but feeling like they might be the only one and feeling powerless at how to manage it. And it's really not their fault. We didn't grow up with these tools and I was talking to a mother the other day whose daughter struggled mightily uh, with, with social media and it really crushed her self-esteem. And she told her daughter that there's certain apps she could not be on. And she actually had her daughter's password for her mm -hmm. phone. She would look at the phone every night to see what her daughter was utilizing. But what she didn't realize is her, doctor, her daughter had actually created an account uh, that she didn't know about on the mm -hmm. platform that she had expressly forbidden mm -hmm. and had hidden it under the other mm -hmm. apps, which mm -hmm. the mom just didn't know yep. that you could do. So uh, this is a bit of the Wild West out there yep. in terms of technology. And unfortunately, uh, it's happening at the expense, in some cases, yeah. uh, of children. So this is a, a really tough space. Um, you know, as we wrap, I, I, I want to, I, I want to just reflect on the fact that we've been talking about some heavy things here, mm -hmm. right? And um, you, you know, there's a lot that parents and kids are contending with. You've provided some really beautiful and clear advice on how to navigate that. As you look at the future mm -hmm. and everything that's going to come, as tech mm -hmm. evolves, as new things come down the pipeline, as we figure out how to deal with climate change and other challenges that, as you mentioned, are on kids' minds. What gives you hope mm -hmm. that the future may be better mm -hmm. than what we're experiencing now? Well, two things. One is, we have studied and studied and studied what protects youth mental health. And there's one thing that stands out above everything else. And it's strong relationships with caring adults. Couple that with the fact that we are now talking about teenage mental health, and you have done such an extraordinary job of moving that conversation into the mainstream. And so I think the fact that we are talking about adolescent mental health and how critically important it is, and that the thing that actually protects and cultivates it more than anything else is available to all of us, those two things give me hope. Oh, that's beautifully said. And I think such a good thing for parents to remember as well, that at those moments when you feel like you're failing, like you're not doing enough for your child, that you can't do uh, everything they need to protect them from the challenges around them. Just knowing that being a loving parent mm -hmm. who is there for your child, that that does so much and perhaps is the most important thing to safeguard and protect them for the future, that, that's something worth holding on to. And so I appreciate you sharing that with us. We have a little bit of time for some questions uh, from the audience.
Good afternoon. Thank you so much for this, uh, for this awesome uh, presentation. My name is Nigaman Sridhar. I serve as provost at Cleveland State University. Um, I want to, um, you know, you talked about the, the start of adolescence and, and the early stages of that. And, and so in general, you talked about the five and six-year-olds. I want to go to the other end. Um, our college freshmen that, that arrive on, in our college campuses, and particularly after the pandemic, this three-year hiatus, if you will, um, can you talk a little bit about um, what that generation of, of kids are experiencing, um, young, young adults really, um, you know, as, they are, uh, as they are sort of in, uh, in the 17, 18, 19 year old, uh, because what we may have thought of as adolescence being ended and now they're adults is, is being extended. Can you speak yeah. a little bit about that generation, please? Do you want to go first? Yeah, okay. you can start. So, um, it's interesting. One of the, you know, I'm always sort of like listening for what are the rumblings of what's coming. And um, what I am hearing from people who are sitting on data sets is that they're very concerned about young adults. That we're talking about teenagers, but they're also very, very concerned about late adolescents, early adults. And if we think about who got T-boned by the pandemic, right? It was kids who were in their sophomore, junior, senior year of high school, such a formative time in terms of developing independence. Um, practicing independence and the safety, you know, of their homes, but, you know, moving out into the world. And for better or for worse, a lot of those kids stayed, quote, on track and went to college. And then we have colleges who are receiving undergraduates who really lost a lot of development, or it was delayed very badly, as my dear colleague Habiba Grimes um, wonderfully points out. It wasn't lost. It was delayed. Now, when I think about it, institutions like yours, CSU, are probably better equipped to manage that than a lot of other schools. That schools that have not always worked with traditional students or have made space for non-traditional students often have more auxiliary support, um, ability to reach out and meet those students where they are and bring them into the college experience. I am watching colleges that have not needed to do that in the past start from a standstill in this and have, and they need to do it, but they're not as well equipped as your institution, I think. Well, what do you say? No, I, I think you said it well. Okay. Uh, I, I think that we, when we talk to people who are in college, uh, to, to students, they talk about having grown up in the shadow of two wars that our country was waging abroad. They talk about the Great Recession, sideswiping opportunities, economic opportunities for them, and leading to a lot of stress and despair among the adults around them. Then the pandemic came along on top of that, just as things were recovering. So th their worldview and life experience have been very different from people who grew up maybe 20 years before them and 30 years before them and experienced times of peace and prosperity. And I think that affects mm -hmm. you know how they feel about the future. So sometimes we see young people who are perhaps not as optimistic as we want them to be about the future to understand what they're going through and what they have been through. But I do think it's incumbent upon the generations above them to do their part to create hope mm -hmm. by helping solve and address some of the deeper challenges that young people see around them, whether that's racial injustice, whether that's climate change, whether it's the ongoing and pernicious threat of violence, particularly gun violence in our communities. Seeing progress on that gives people hope. Mm -hmm. um, but that progress has not been as quick and as fast in coming as it needs to be. And so I don't think we can blame our kids for feeling the way they do. Yeah. Other questions? Go ahead. Um, 
So the topic of mental health in some households isn't necessarily like welcomed and some parents are kind of against it. So when a child or a teen is talking to their healthcare provider and they decide that they want to tell the, their healthcare provider about their mental health issues and they ask the doctor to kind of keep it a secret, what do you think the doctor should do about it so they're not putting the child potentially in danger? Hmm. <laughs> Wonderful question. Okay, well, so there's secrets and there's secrets. We don't keep secrets about imminent safety concerns, right? So luckily, any doctor knows what to do um, if that information comes about. But it's interesting. One thing I've observed, again, sort of in my appointed rounds, is something I think we should have seen coming, but I was sorry to see it happen, which is as we've raised the alarm about adolescent mental health, I've heard from some teenagers that their parents are actually quicker to say, you're fine, mm. you're fine. And what I think is, oh, those are parents for whom the idea of adolescent distress is very upsetting, and so hearing about it is actually causing a defensive response, which mm. is, no, you're fine. Now, here's the thing about teenagers that is the greatest thing in the whole world. They have their parents. They are also surrounded by other phenomenal adults everywhere they go. Their schools, their after-school activities, their places of worship, and so, I always feel more comfortable and hopeful with a 15-year-old whose parents um, are maybe not seeing eye to eye with them than I do with a 12-year-old. Because with a 15-year-old, I know they can go to school, get a fabulous counselor at school who can talk with them. They can go to their church. They can talk with a pastor there. There's other adults who can rally and fill that space. Um, whereas for younger kids, they don't always have that kind of autonomy and latitude. So as kids move into later adolescence, I think more options open for the kind of support they can get from loving adults. Next question. Hi, Lisa. Um, you talked a lot about you know dealing with feelings and emotions, but what I'm experiencing in my professional and personal life is this apathetic feeling from teens, the lack of um, feelings or emotion. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about kids who don't seem to be motivated, who are not even motivated to be with their peers, kind of like recluse, want to be you know home all day, and trying to like you know circumvent that. Thank you. Thank you, Candace. Um, Here's a story we're not telling about the pandemic, is um, the rise of avoidance to manage anxiety. So um, one of the principles in psychology is that avoidance feeds anxiety. The more you avoid something, the less inclined you feel to do it, the more anxious you feel about it. Um, we are seeing record levels of school refusal or truancy or chronic absenteeism. It's called lots of things, depending on the district you're looking at. And so I think that what has happened for a lot of kids is that something that maybe made them a little anxious prior to the pandemic, maybe going to parties or going to school, you then don't do it for a year and a half. You have a year and a half of avoidance, and then the idea of returning to it becomes overwhelming. And so then you think, well, maybe I will go to school or I will go to that party, and then you start to feel anxious, and then you think, or I won't. And then your anxiety drains away. It's a highly reinforcing experience. Whatever you imagine to be true about school or that party goes unchallenged, however scary or worrisome you thought it would be, sealed in amber. And so then actually avoidance continues. I will say for school avoidance, there's the relief that comes with it. There is the you know unchallenged beliefs about how worrisome school can be. But for school especially, the minute a kid misses a day, they are out of the loop socially, they're a bit out of the loop academically, and so it becomes a very, very steep slope. Um, and so what we know as psychologists is not only does avoidance feed anxiety, but we also know there is a single solution, 
we call it exposure, which is basically you gotta go. Hmm. You gotta go. And you don't have to go a full week the first week. You don't have to go to every party all the time, but hmm. you do need to actually get yourself back in, not enjoy the relief that comes with avoidance, check out the scene. Um, and I think for me, the key in helping kids move back into the world, engage more fully with the world, is to not let any of us, but especially our teenagers, equate being uncomfortable or a situation being uncomfortable with a situation being unmanageable. Hmm. Those are two different things. And we actually need to help kids get back into situations that make them uncomfortable and support them so that they can do it. Hmm. Next question. Thank you so much. This has been very helpful. Um, my name is Karen and I am a registered and licensed school nurse and I want to talk about the sleep factor. Um, I had done some research prior to this when you were talking about um, kind of the Pavlov dog thing where students sleep in the clinic and I'm, I take away their phone because I want them to sleep if they have a headache or something. The phone gets put aside. I don't even know this is going on. It'll vibrate or give some type of thing and they, they're dead sleep and they're putting their arm out to look for the phone. So I tried to do a lot of research about this factor for one of my papers, came up with very little, but I did find something interesting, and I'm wondering if you could expound on this because of this. The frontal lobe that is growing in adolescence needs REM sleep and a certain mm -hmm. sleep cycle, and these teens aren't getting it because they're not sleeping all night, and grabbing for their phone, which starts back the sleep cycle that they're not getting through anything about this in your research, and thank you. That's one thing I did do good as a parent. Mine are older. They never had phones in their room. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Um, I don't know that research. It's fascinating, and I'm not surprised. But here's the thing I would say. None of us should have our phones in our rooms overnight. And so if you're thinking, like, how do I convince my teenager to do this? I'm not going to say this is going to go easy, but you could go home and say, you know what? We are all taking our phones and we are charging them in the kitchen or in the whatever. And your teenager will say, no, 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 no. It's my music. It's my alarm. And you say, look, I got you this clock radio. Or I got you that. Um, or this Alexa. I have no problem with that, you know, as long as it's not a portal into their whole friendship. And then you can say to them, listen, we're taking the phones out of our rooms too. If we take the phone out of our room so that we sleep better, and we don't do the same for you, that would be like we got in the car and we put on our seatbelts and we don't care what you do. Hmm. So, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, next question. Hi, thank you so much for being here in this conversation. Um, I'm the parent of a non-binary 17-year-old and a black adopted 10-year-old son. I have a lot of questions, but I'll ask only two. Um, the first one is how can we best support LGBTQ youth who are feeling existential anxiety caused by all the anti-gay, anti-trans legislation. The message they are getting from the world is they are not safe and people in government don't want them to exist. That's what my team told me just the other day. Um, we talk about focusing on managing, you know, like what we can actually control in our lives, but this is an anxiety that they live with day in and day out. And the next one is related to what we were just talking about, devices in the bedroom. We totally agree we kind of slid in ninth grade, and when we discuss it with our teen, they say it causes them immense anxiety because it's a lifeline to giving emotional support to their friends or getting emotional support, uh, uh -huh, especially uh -huh. around LGBTQ issues. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Okay, 
Um, so teens watch the news. Teens are smart. Kids who do not fit into traditional gender categories are not wrong. That um, the world is not safe for them and it's not always being made more safe for them. I think you have to always be honest with teenagers, right? They, they see through hypocrisy. We have to be honest that that is the landscape. We also have to be clear with them that we affirm their identities, the people around them love them and support them and will work very hard to protect them. I think that focusing on the immediate is what we can do. As for the teen who feels that the phone is the lifeline through the night and through emotional support, I think there's a couple things we can say. One is, we do want teenagers to support one another. We never want to interfere with that. They're incredibly good at it. We also want to be pretty clear with teenagers about when they are working with a friend on something that actually belongs in the hands of an adult. And so I, I say to teenagers, there's five things. Depression slash suicide, self-harm, eating disordered behavior, high, high risk behavior, teenagers who are acting in out of control ways, um, and dangerous relationships. And I say, if it's one of those five, that belongs not just in the hands of an adult, but actually a trained adult. You know, and so we need to help you get that information to the right person so your friend can get the help they deserve. Because it does happen that teenagers stay up all night trying to talk a friend through something enormously painful. And we need to make it clear to them, we're here to help with these things. And these are the things that we especially need to hear from you about. Now, again, this is not going to go over well or it's not going to be easy. Your teen sleeping and their friend sleeping instead of texting through the night goes exactly to what you said. These create a vicious cycle. A teenager's anxious, they do not sleep, their anxiety accelerates, then something happens the next day that if they were well rested they could take in stride, but because they're exhausted is now disastrous, right? I mean, it just, it all accelerates. And I will tell you clinically, when I'm caring for someone in crisis, my first question always is, talk to me about your sleep. And if they are sleeping, we go to work on the crisis. If they are not sleeping, we go to work on their sleep because no one can get through a difficult situation if they are not sleeping. Yeah. Very helpful. We have time for one last question. Ma'am, over here. Thank you. Um, I wanted to go back to what you said about the parent. So my son went to college. Um, he's 29 now, so he was 19, had a, day, had a mental breakdown in college. He was an all-star on a scholarship, and they diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia bipolar. It was like it was overnight. And uh, the school put him, well, he went to the medical, and they put him in the psych ward. Mm -hmm. And so I went on a seven-year journey. He's thriving now, doing phenomenal. Um, and then my best friend died, and I take care now of her 18-year-old. She, she died of COVID mm -hmm. in 2021. He came to me with his sister with mental illness. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm the new mental illness person. <laughs> but it was a journey, and so he's still in school now, doing phenomenal. We don't sleep with phones, all of that. Had to change his whole program. Now, here's my question. That's the reason I said all of that. When you're dealing with a parent that is not supportive, like you said, we need more support for parents that are going through this because on this seven-year journey, and now him... Um, I have uh, help now, but my son, which is with my ex-husband, he was totally um, not supportive at all, and it made it longer for me as a mom. What do you suggest we do to get something in place 
for parents that are going through that because I had to do a lot to keep my own mental health. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, and that's an extraordinary amount that you've been through. Um, what I will say is that Cleveland has Metro Health Hospitals, and they are an absolute jewel. And so I would, as a parent, trying to care for a teenager or a young person who's suffering, reach out to their phenomenal behavioral health team and get plugged in there. And so often, the work of caring for teenagers is the work of caring for their parents. And I know the team down at Metro Health, and they know exactly what they're doing. And so sometimes parents will say to me, you know, my teenager needs therapy. They won't go. What do I do? And I'll say, you go. <laughs> right? And, and, that, and, and somehow it just doesn't occur to us. But actually, that can be a wonderful, either instead of or in addition to providing direct support to a teenager, to also get that parent hooked up with a seasoned clinician. Well, I want to thank everyone uh, for joining us for this live episode of House Calls. And most of all, Lisa, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. Grateful for you. And for all of those of you out there who might have been wondering, uh, if you were wondering at all why Lisa is a best-selling author and so well sought after for her advice, now you understand why. <laughs> so I'm just so grateful we had you with us today. And thank you for all the incredible advice you provided to all of us and to me as well. You're welcome. Gonna, <laughs> I took notes, and uh, we'll be putting this into practice. Great. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thanks, everyone.